Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the occasional podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. This episode was recorded on February 10th, 2020. I'm Nicholas Terry, a professor of law at Indiana University in Indianapolis. Today, two exceptional returning guests. Nicole Huberfeld is professor of law, ethics and human rights at the School of Public Health and professor of law at the School of Law at Boston University. Her scholarship focuses on the cross-section of health law and constitutional law with emphasis on health reform federalism and the federal spending power. She's the co-author of two leading case books, The Law of American Healthcare and Public Health Law. Her scholarship is as voluminous as it is remarkable. And in 2019, she won the Excellence in Teaching Award at BU School of Public Health. I think this is pod number 11 for you. Welcome back, Nikki. Thanks so much for having me. I'm always delighted to be here. And Rachel Sachs, an occasional co-author of yours, an equally awesome and voluminous and remarkable, is a professor at Washington University in St. Louis. She is a scholar of innovation policy whose work explores the interaction of intellectual property law, food and drug regulation, and health law. Her work explores problems of innovation and access to new healthcare technologies. As mentioned, her scholarship has appeared in major law reviews and health policy journals. Before entering the world of teaching and researching, she clerked for the Honorable Richard A. Posner of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. A super warm welcome back to you also, Rachel. Thank you so much. I'm so glad to be back. We have just one topic today, and it's a doozy. In a Dear Medicaid Director letter dated January 30th, 2020, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, invited applications from the states via a waiver mechanism, the so-called Section 1115 waiver, to replace their Medicaid expansion programs with a type of block grant branded by CMS as its healthy adult opportunity. Writing in the Post last week, CMS Administrator Seema Verma noted, quote, unfortunately, it hasn't taken long, even by by Washington standards for talking points with a dubious relationship to reality to start circulating among defenders of the status quo. Let me be clear, fear-mongering notwithstanding, HAO does not cut Medicaid funding. This optional demonstration continues federal funding to states based on their historical spending with a reasonable growth rate, unquote. So I hope the two of you will behave, that you will toe the line, and we don't want to hear about you being found in New England diners looking to upset the vice president or others. So to the proposal, and I guess what the proposal is itself, and then maybe sort of rolling into how it differs from, at least descriptively, rather than what we see its policy impact, which we'll handle later, but how it differs uh, descriptively from conventional Medicaid, expanded Medicaid, sort of run era, block grants, chip, and so on. Why don't we start with you, Nikki? Thanks, Nick. That was a great introduction. So let me just say a couple of words about what block grants are broadly so that I can contrast that with how Medicaid typically operates. Block grants are a kind of federal funding where the federal government gives money to states and sometimes local governments, and it gives them a specified amount of funding to perform a particular policy objective. And so um, these could be social services, it could be community development, it could be um, criminal enforcement. So block grant ideas have been floated in a number of policy spaces. And lately, what everybody has been talking about, as you said in the intro, 
is that the uh, Department of Health and Human Services now has the desire to, quote unquote, block grant Medicaid. And I think it's hard to understand why that is a major change if you don't understand how Medicaid works now. So for its entire existence, which is now 55 years, Medicaid has been a federal spending program that is a promise of unlimited funds to states that perform according to certain federal statutory guidelines. So, so long as the state is playing by those federal rules, it will receive federal funding for paying for the medical care of its poor citizenry. And this means that Medicaid is an entitlement to both states and to those people who are legally entitled to enroll in the program. So as long as a state is spending on Medicaid, it receives a federal match on its spending. Medicaid has become a target because of this uncapped spending. And in part, I would say that is because Medicaid has grown significantly over time. It now covers more than 71 million people in the United States. And that means it covers nearly half of all births, about two-thirds of long-term care services, almost 40% of all children. And so people point to Medicaid as being a costly program. But in fact, I think I would state that differently. Medicaid certainly costs a lot of money, but it is not a costly program. Costs are typically kept quite low in Medicaid. And in fact, the populations that cost the most in Medicaid are the elderly and disabled, who typically aren't touched by proposals like this block grant proposal. So people may feel a little bit confused because there have been other block grant proposals floating around in recent years. For example, in 2017, when Congress was engaging in efforts to repeal and replace the ACA, a couple of those bills engaged Medicaid through block grant funding, meaning capped funding. Now, sometimes that capped funding means a set lump sum of money to the state based on on prior year's costs, and sometimes it means per capita caps, meaning per person caps. Either way, we're talking about capped spending for our safety net program for medical care. Now, 2017 uh, may also elicit images of Paul Ryan arguing for block grants, and so people might be curious why block grants seem appealing to some policymakers. And usually the argument is that block grants make federal spending more predictable and make it so that uh, the cost of a program can be limited in more predictable fashion, at least for the federal government. States often are wary of block granting because they're expected to pick up the slack when costs increase. So the usual idea is block granting will make um, spending more predictable for the federal government. And simultaneously, the trade-off usually is that states get more regulatory flexibility in that program. And that was certainly the idea behind Paul Ryan's proposals for block granting Medicaid. And it seems to be driving part of the proposal here. Just for a little bit of context, this is not the first time that block grants have come up in Medicaid in particular. George W. Bush tried to propose block grants in Medicaid in 2003. Newt Gingrich attempted to block grant Medicaid in the mid-90s. And that effort ultimately turned into block granting welfare, which is now TANF. And Ronald 
Reagan tried to block grant Medicaid as a trade-off with the states, the states would take over all welfare programs um, and the federal government would take over Medicaid and create it into, make it into something new entirely. Each of those prior efforts failed. Medicaid remains an open-ended promise to states. So Rachel, let's dig in a little bit more into some of the detail of this proposal as put forward by CMS. And it's, this is almost an, an unlimited um, rabbit hole that we could descend into. So let's, we'll try and keep it uh, relatively light. Uh, first of all, as Nicole points out, block grants can either have sort of an overall or aggregate cap or maybe a cap per capita limit. This proposal allows for either, as I read it. Secondly, this proposal has a shared savings component in the program that seems to allow states to keep certain amounts not spent within the capped amount. And the third piece I'd, I'd like you maybe to, to talk about is the population that potentially this would apply to, in that it seems to apply to the Medicaid expansion population not traditional Medicaid, and it even targets subsections within that. I'd like to start with your third point about the populations that the proposal applies to, because the administration's choice of populations actually helps explain their legal theory about how this is even potentially permissible. So the administration seems to be targeting the Medicaid expansion population for these block grants, but they're actually allowing it to be much broader than that. So what Seema Verma has said in that editorial that you cited is that the block grants are available to states for working age adults who are not eligible on the basis of a disability and for whom Medicaid coverage is optional. So the idea is that we're focused on the expansion population, but it's not limited to those populations because optional categories of coverage include things like certain pregnant women and certain low-income parents to the extent that states have decided to cover them beyond what might be required by federal law. And reading through the block grant letter, it really seems like the federal government is asking states that are already operating some of these broader coverage populations to close out their existing demonstrations and reestablish them under a block grant system where they would be able to use some of these more flexible payment arrangements. The administration's idea is that this would allow waivers to occur not under Section 1115A1, but under Section 1115A2. And in their view, that allows you to circumvent legal concerns about coverage for these populations in terms of the open-ended funding that Nikki suggested. What does the shared savings component uh, bring us? One question that we might have is why would states pursue a block grant approach? Because by definition, they would be limiting some of their ability to respond to changing circumstances and would be hamstrung in some of the actions 
actions that they could take in their program as needs might expand. And so this CMS is offering incentives for states to move to a block grant approach. And one of these incentives is a shared savings model where states which save relative to whatever aggregate spending cap they would seek to identify would be eligible to recoup some of those savings, which they could then use more broadly for health-related purposes. And the idea is that CMS will have some oversight over those shared savings spending, but they could be used for public health purposes that go beyond the Medicaid population. Now, I think there are questions here about exactly how we're proposing to track and oversee a lot of these state approaches. And so one concern that I think should be paramount as we evaluate these block grants is that CMS envisions allowing states to make changes to their proposal without continued approval of all of the changes states might seek to make. But states, in theory, uh, would need to meet certain conditions on the use of these shared savings. So we we read about state flexibility, and we know that some Medicaid cohorts, such as the elderly or disabled, are not included in this program, at least as currently stated. But rather, the program is aimed at a smaller group of non-disabled adults. I, I don't know whether it's exactly the same cohort as targeted by work requirement, but it's something like that. Uh, Verma estimates about 15 million folks. Now, where does the cap come in or where do the savings come in? Uh, is this program designed, at least on its face, to reduce the eligible population or is it designed to reduce services to an eligible population or is it designed to reduce reimbursement for those who provide such services and or etc cetera, etc. Cetera. I think actually the way you ask the question is is really helpful because you're asking what is it designed to do? And at the highest level what this program is designed to do is to target the expansion population under the Affordable Care Act. And that statutory provision is specifically cited in the Medicaid director letter. It is what some people call the eighth category of eligibility under Medicaid, and that eighth category of eligibility is non-elderly non-disabled adults who are also childless. That is the category that is directly affected by this policy. However, we know that spillover effects occur so that, for example, um, when parents become disenrolled from insurance, so do their children and other family members. It's it's known as a welcome out effect that when people get in, so do their families, and then the reverse occurs as well. So the way that this is designed is that states would have to submit an application for what's called a Section 1115 waiver. And that waiver could include a proposal for either a cap on total spending or a proposal for a cap on per capita spending, meaning per Medicaid beneficiary spending. And then that what they would get in exchange is less federal oversight that could be in a number of dimensions. It could be in terms of how payment to providers is uh, calculated. It could be in how delivery is provided. It could be in eligibility and it could be in payment. So there are actually a 
number of design vectors that are possible here. So if I can just take a second to explain some of this so that people understand the kinds of things that could change in Medicaid. And it will depend on the particular proposal before CMS, although we know Tennessee already has a waiver on the desk of uh, Seema Verma. The governor of Oklahoma was at this announcement. Alaska has expressed interest. Um, Arkansas and Georgia have also expressed interest. Uh, Utah had a block grant denied but could circle back around. Texas has had a study that commissioned a block grant proposal ideas. So there are a number of states sort of waiting in the wings to decide if they're interested. Um, Governor Reynolds in Iowa is another one who's expressed interest. So what are the kinds of things that they might do? Well, if a state proposed a capped lump sum payment for the ACA expansion population, what would happen is that the calculation would be based on the most recent eight quarters of expenditure data, and that would be used to calculate a base year amount of federal funding for the state. Now, the state would still have to prove that it is spending the money it's supposed to spend under the Medicaid Act in order to get that federal funding. So the state still has to provide its share of the match in Medicaid. But this cap would also mean if they went with this cap lump sum format, that there would be no payment adjustments for increased enrollment. And so that means that a state has a disincentive to increase enrollment, let's say, if that there's an economic recession. Um, now, if a state were to propose a per capita cap, that means that the state would be held to the lesser of the consumer price index for medical costs or the lesser of the growth rate in that state for the Medicaid program for the last five years. I'm sure all of this is clear as mud for people who are not uh, engaged in Medicaid with any frequency. But basically what it means is that states are promising to CMS that they will find ways to use less money. Now, what happens then is that you might think states might have an incentive to completely disenroll this expansion population. And that's where the shared savings idea comes in. In part, what it means is that states have to use their block grant from the federal government or lose it. In other words, if they use less than 80% of that aggregate federal sum, their cap will be reduced in the next year. So states have an incentive to actually spend their money from the federal government for Medicaid. And the shared savings plan makes it so that, and, and by the way, the shared savings plan isn't available for per capita cap states. It's only for capped lump sum states. The shared savings plan makes it so that a state can claim some money back if it manages to save based on those markers I just described. But uh, the way that the state gains those savings is by further Medicaid spending. So it's a little bit hard to perceive how a state would take advantage of the shared savings. Those shared savings were proposed by Tennessee in its application for a waiver amendment back in December, uh, but it remains unclear how that would actually play out, frankly. There is some allowance in these caps for emergency but otherwise what happens is that states are told you should target your expansion population under the ACA if you want these block grants. However, you'll only get the ACA's increased match if you fully expand. So if a state wants to expand, let's say a state like Oklahoma that hasn't expanded Medicaid wants to expand partially, which has been rejected by CMS so far, let's say up to 100% of the federal poverty level, which currently is around $12,000 in earnings per year, uh, that would mean that that state is not fully expanding under the ACA. And uh, what would happen is that that state would get matched at its usual Medicaid 
guaranteed match rate, not at the ACA's increased match rate, which is the way that that match works is that it's every Medicaid dollar is 10 cents from the state and 90 cents from the federal government. So for a state like Oklahoma, if they decided to expand partially, their usual match, I think, is somewhere around 67 cents from the federal government. So you can see the difference there would be a pretty big difference. But what would happen is that that state gets other flexibilities in exchange for even considering expansion. So for example, those flexibilities might mean things like waiving retroactive eligibility so that a person isn't covered prior to the moment that they get enrolled in Medicaid. Um, It could mean more frequent eligibility redetermination so that people have to comply with more paperwork. And we know that paperwork makes it so that people are less likely to be able to stay in Medicaid. So it's sort of a de facto method of disenrollment. Uh, We also saw that the, uh, the goal here was to double down on the idea of work requirements. Work requirements are encouraged once again, especially for the expansion population, even though federal courts have been striking down the methods of approving work requirements, the substance of them remains waiting in the wings. Likewise, states could get flexibility in terms of determining how they're going to um, deliver certain kinds of care. So for some older children, 19 and 20 year olds, EPSDT benefits, which are very specific benefits for children in Medicaid, could be waived, uh, which would be highly unusual. Um, Access and network adequacy rules in managed care delivery systems could be waived um, or at least reduced so that states have more flexibility in deciding how they want to deal with their managed care contractors. Uh, In terms of payments, the guidance invites states to seek waivers on limits on premiums and on cost sharing up to 5% of total household income. So again, for a person earning 100% of the federal poverty level, they'd be earning around $12,760 in 2020 maximum. And 5% of that is $638 per year, which is a lot of money for somebody earning $12,000 a year, needless to say. And these waivers of premium and cost sharing caps that usually exist in Medicaid would be enforceable, meaning that if a person who is poor can't pay their copayments or premiums, they could be kicked out of Medicaid. So it's another de facto mechanism for disenrollment. There are some other flexibilities, but I don't want to get too, too far into the weeds. Talking of weeds, let's let's uh, let's clear the brush a little bit here. First of all, you mentioned Tennessee. Uh, the Tennessee waiver request would not be considered under this program. Am I correct? Because it's a, the Tennessee request rotates around the traditional Medicaid population. Tennessee has not expanded Medicaid so as to qualify for this program? It is a a mismatch. It's unclear whether Tennessee will have to reconfigure and resubmit its uh, its waiver application. It wasn't a straightforward waiver application. It was a request to amend their existing 1115 waiver, and it is for the entire Medicaid population in Tennessee. So it appears that they have to rejigger their application, but um, the signals from Tennessee so far a little bit unclear as to how they're going to handle that. And keep in mind what happened with work requirements. Kentucky's application sat on HHS's desk from the Obama administration into the Trump administration. Governor Bevin submitted that waiver request in 2016. The Obama administration didn't grant it, but it remained live on the desk of HHS so that when Congress failed to uh, repeal and replace the ACA in 2017, and then HHS turned around in January 2018 and issued the policy guidance for work requirements, Kentucky's waiver application was still sitting there and was granted toot sweet. Before we move on to sort of more of the politics here, a question, sort of the dumb guy question. 
we've had sort of two punches to the gut with regard to Medicaid over the last two weeks. The first, the block grant proposals that we're discussing now, but also most recently, and there's still kind of leaks, although more detail came out this morning, the new administration's budget seems to seek massive cuts from Medicaid. How did these two relate to each other? In other words, I assume that because Medicaid is an entitlement, spending entitlement, that even if there was a cut in the budget, the federal government would still have to pay the states. Therefore, if I'm correct in that, and I did say it was the dumb guy question and I'm struggling, I assume that for the Trump administration to make its budget numbers, it has to get work requirements and block grants out there en masse. So in previous years, the administration's budget has explicitly called for legislation to create work requirements or other restrictions on the Medicaid program. This year, so far, what we've seen out of the budget, which it will take a little more time to digest as it's being released as we're recording this, the administration is light on the details. There are articulating a savings target. In other words, they want to cut, I believe, $844 billion to both the ACA and Medicaid, but they don't really provide details about how they envision that to be accomplished. I think a block grant program coupled with mandatory work requirements would be a key way they're envisioning accomplishing that goal, but I can understand why in an election year, they're being particularly coy about how they plan to spend hundreds of billions of dollars less. And I think it's important to recognize that you simply can't cut spending at those levels without really severe harms to patients, harms to enrollment, harms to what services patients are able to obtain. And that shouldn't be ignored here. So let's push the political angle just for, for a moment. Um, it's certainly outside my scope of practice. But um, we know, for example, and Nikki alluded to this earlier, that block grants have already been rejected by Congress when it refused to pass, repeal and replace. And even before then, Speaker Ryan's proposals failed to achieve serious traction in Congress. Essentially, CMS is inviting years of expensive litigation for the states here with arguably with a small chance of final victory. Medicaid and Medicare, Rachel, you alluded to this, are both popular programs with the electorate. I can also see healthcare providers and pharmaceutical companies pushing back in terms of reduced reimbursement or state prescription drug formularies that seem to be coming. How many states, particularly in an election year, are going to opt into this program? How many members of Congress are going to vote for a budget that tries to give life to the program? I think it's highly unlikely that this budget will pass. As Rachel mentioned, this 
kind of budget proposal is really just a signal as to what the president's interested in. It is notable that the budget proposal itself does double down on work requirements and actually calls them work requirements instead of community engagement, which is the euphemism from work requirements. So if you look at page 53 of the president's budget proposal, it actually calls for consistency between work requirements in Medicaid and TANF, which is what people think of as cash welfare. Um, and then separately, there are also work requirements that can be imposed in uh, food stamps, which people call SNAP. Um, and so the difference, and as you said, Nick, we'll get to the legal part of this in a minute, is that TANF and SNAP both allow for work requirements in their enabling statutes. Medicaid does not. So while people might look at this budget and think, yeah, people should work for what they get from the government. In Medicaid, one of its major features, sort of the core of the program has always been that it is specifically designed to meet the needs of Medicaid enrollees. So as I mentioned before, it'd be EPSDT for kids. Uh, there's um, significant uh, support for long-term care, family planning. Um, it pays for things like transportation because people who are low income often can't get to their appointments. And so um, the, the core of Medicaid is that it is designed to pay for the medical care of the poor. And anytime you introduce something like work requirements, that is going to make it much more difficult for people to get the care they need and or make it easier for them to be disenrolled. So you're right to perceive that these things seem like they are unpopular and they've failed repeatedly in Congress. Congress repeatedly has been asked to block grant Medicaid by different conservative thinkers. And consistently, Congress has not been able to do it or has refused to do it. Yet this idea keeps coming up. It's like block grants have become the holy grail of conservative thinkers. And so I go back to what I said at the beginning, that really it's a matter of seeking predictability and federal budgeting, and also that old trope of federalism, of giving states more flexibility. But the truth is states already have plenty of flexibility in Medicaid. They have quite a lot of flexibility in how they can work within the federal statute that is the Medicaid Act. And Medicaid is far from the so-called one-size-fits-all program, which is an expression I wish we could just lose. And just to support Nikki's points, right now, the budget that's being released today suggests that the formalization and broad inclusion of work requirements in the Medicaid program is expected to save $152 billion over 10 years. But most people on Medicaid, as we know, are already working or they'd be exempt from these work requirements. And we've seen already that work requirements really are leading to disenrollment through administrative hassles and friction, and they're not meaningfully increasing the employment rates of the relevant population. So we're primarily talking about a savings because people are being needlessly kicked off of Medicaid. You've both discussed sort of the um, the conservative rationale for um, a block grants and the relationship to the work requirements. Let's take a, a, a few steps back and sort of look at the broader policy questions raised here. We've already mentioned that Medicaid, traditional Medicaid, is a good deal for the states and the enhanced match 
is an even better deal. Medicaid is counter-cyclical, which allows states to better manage changes in the economy, such as a recession. It is one of the better deals in U.S. healthcare. Um, more efficient, less expensive per capita than group health insurance or Medicare. And caps, after they get introduced, tend to get perpetuated. And so they tend not to rise with healthcare inflation and so on. Where as sort of policy analysts are you on on this overall question and, and how it would impact uh, healthcare access and delivery in the US? Healthy adults are account currently for less than 20% of Medicaid costs. The elderly and the disabled are the highest cost populations and chances are good they always will be. So then the question is, why would any state engage in something like block grants? And again, if we're trying to be fair, we could see that there's a possible trade-off here. If we're looking at a state like, again, to use the example of Oklahoma or Tennessee, uh, they are Medicaid non-expansion states. There are still 14 states that haven't expanded Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. And if those states would be willing to consider expanding coverage under a block grant, that is arguably better than no coverage because being uninsured is the worst possible status. And we also know there's plenty of evidence to indicate that Medicaid expansion is beneficial in a number of vectors. It does actually improve insurance coverage. Believe it or not, people question that it would. It does. It improves access to care. It improves beneficiary health. It improves the financial health of healthcare providers engaging with Medicaid expansion populations, especially safety net and community hospitals. And it has been either neutral or net positive for the states that have engaged in expansion. So to the extent that a state wants to access all of those things for its population, those are good policy objectives, but they are achieved with the basic Medicaid expansion. The question is, why would you do that with a block grant? And it seems the answer is that the, again, it goes back to the financial predictability of a block grant and the lack of federal oversight that CMS seems to be promising here. However, there's a history that indicates that that lack of federal oversight is a, a warning flag because before Medicaid existed, the prior grant and aid programs like Kerr Mills and others were sort of like the kind of block grant that Medicaid might do now. And the problem was that either states didn't engage with them because there wasn't enough money uh, being offered and many states didn't actually follow the federal rules that did exist and the federal government knew it but didn't do anything about it. So Medicaid looks like it does for a reason. The rules exist in Medicaid for a reason. It's that states need that federal money to cover the poor. And when they're given unfettered access to federal money, they tend to run off in different directions with it. Now, the guidance from CMS seems to indicate that um, there will be strong federal oversight for some aspects of the uh, block grant program. But frankly, the initiative encourages state flexibilities decreases the number of substantive reasons that states would need to ask CMS for permission to move in a different direction and decreases the number of touch points a state would have in terms of when it changes policy, whether it has to engage with CMS or not. To weigh in here on this question of what these block grants might mean for patient access to prescription drugs, this is something I've written about and been following for a few years. 
in 2017, the state of Massachusetts had asked CMS for a waiver that would allow its state Medicaid program to close its formulary, is the term, essentially to decline to cover certain FDA-approved drugs in the hopes of obtaining greater discounts from manufacturers on them. This is an approach that's used in the commercial market, in Medicare Part D to some extent, in the VA, and Medicaid in Massachusetts wanted to engage in this as well. CMS denied Massachusetts's request, but in doing so, they didn't explain in the denial why they were doing so. Simultaneously, Secretary Alex Azar wrote a letter to the editor in the New York Times explaining that they were denying Massachusetts's waiver because it was an effort at double dipping. And basically, here's what he meant by that. Prescription drugs are actually an optional category of care in the Medicaid program. States don't have to cover them. Every state has decided to do so, and that choice comes with a set of obligations. Essentially, states have to cover almost all FDA-approved drugs. In exchange, they get preferred pricing benefits. They get large statutory rebates off of the average price in the private market, and they are entitled to the best price if it falls below that rebated price. And so what Massachusetts wanted was to close its formulary and avoid covering some of these drugs, but also to keep these rebates. And that's what Secretary Azar said was not permitted. CMS said if you want to give up your rebates, you could close your formulary, but analysis at the time and today suggests that states would need to really restrict access to prescription drugs to make that budget neutral or cost saving, which would be a condition of obtaining the waiver in the first place. Now, though, we're seeing CMS reverse its position. And the block grant waivers include the possibility for states to close their formularies with some exceptions and to keep rebates while they're doing this. It's not entirely clear to me what the legal basis for this is, why CMS thinks that closed formularies are possible within the context of block grants, but not more broadly, which is something we can certainly talk about. But it is important to note that we are talking here about the possibility of states to decline to cover broader classes of certain prescription drugs, provided that they do meet certain minimum coverage requirements. Requirements. And these are seemingly invented by CMS out of whole cloth. So to be clear, it's a really good idea from a policy perspective to protect patients with HIV AIDS, to protect patients with substance use disorder, as the block grant seems to attempt to. But those requirements aren't found anywhere in the statute. It seems like CMS is trying to come up with a way to allow states to exclude drugs from coverage and deprive patients of access to drugs they may need without trying to open themselves up to criticism that they've experienced in the past for going too far down this road. So let's talk 
legal challenges. I'll take a brief pause here, dear pod listener. You will need to open uh, your copy of the Social Security Act, put a finger in section 1115, one in 1902 and one in 1903. Uh, Twill urges listeners to the pod who are currently driving not to do that. In DC, there's a court, a federal district court, and a federal district court that has uh, made quite a name for itself over the last few years dealing with work requirements and uh, uh, state attempted uh, 1115 waivers. I'm guessing they're going to be busy again. We can safely assume that this policy will be challenged. And the reason is that it is not legal. Uh, The Affordable Care Act expanded eligibility to a new population of people, as we talked about earlier. And that expansion population is still part of the Medicaid Act. And so if a state wanted to choose to expand Medicaid eligibility, all it would have to do is submit a state plan amendment and CMS would approve that state plan amendment. Very straightforward. Now, states have gotten creative. They've submitted waivers that are called demonstration waivers under Section 1115 of the Social Security Act, which you just described, Nick. And Section 1115 allows states to engage in what we call demonstration projects that, in the judgment of the secretary, are likely to assist in promoting the objectives of the Medicaid Act. And the objective of the Medicaid Act is to furnish medical assistance. Judge Boasberg, in the work requirement litigation you just alluded to, has said that furnishing medical assistance means paying for medical care. It does not mean generalized ideas of health. It does not mean cost containment. And so the same kinds of questions will certainly arise here because, as we've said repeatedly, the purpose of block grants is cost containment. And states that are interested in block grants are going to be interested in cost containment. That means either disenrollment or limiting uh, benefits or limiting payments, which will mean that healthcare providers don't participate as much, which means the state could be running afoul of equal access rules in Medicaid. So there are certainly questions as to whether block grants could ever meet the substantive requirement that a demonstration project be a project that further the purposes of the Medicaid Act. But even more importantly, Section 1115 allows the Secretary to waive what's called Section 1902, which is part of the Medicaid Act, and the payment rules are part of Section 1903, and Section 1903 is not waivable. So why does this matter? Because the Secretary is trying to waive Section 1903 under this policy guidance. So we have a problem with whether Section 1115 gives the Secretary this authority in the first place. Now, some people have made a big deal of the fact that the policy guidance points to A2, and A2 can't be read alone. This is a statute that has an and in it. And so A2 doesn't stand alone. It simply allows the secretary to pay for expenditures that might not otherwise be covered in Medicaid if the appropriate standards are met for a demonstration project. The problem is that, of course, the expansion population would be paid for through the usual mechanisms if a state chose 
to expand Medicaid eligibility. We also, of course, have a problem with the fact that this is a policy letter and not a formal rulemaking. So when an agency changes its position substantively on what the law means, typically that would require a rulemaking under the Administrative Procedure Act, but none has occurred here. So I want to agree completely with that and just say a little bit more about what the administration's legal theory is here, because I think it's really troubling. So the administration recognizes this question that it certainly can't waive Section 1903 under 1115A1. And it seems like what they're trying to do is get around that by calling the block grant waiver an exercise of Section 1115A2. But in doing so, they're really trying to arrogate to themselves power to disregard all of the other protections of the Medicaid statute for individuals for whom Medicaid coverage is optional. The idea is that for these beneficiaries primarily, but not only the expansion population, they're treated as people who are subject to expenditure authority under A2 rather than as part of the core Medicaid program under A1. And therefore, we can do almost anything to their coverage. We can impose additional requirements in terms of eligibility. We can take away certain benefits. We can do all kinds of things. And it's it's certainly not clear that A2 allows you to do this. I agree and don't think it does. But we should be troubled by the breadth of the administration's argument here as well. I agree that we're going to be in court over this. And one actor that I think it might be interesting to see involved here is the pharmaceutical industry, which hasn't really played a role in some of the previous Medicaid eligibility and expansion litigation, but which has come out with a position that these closed formularies are not legal. And so they might seek to challenge some of these requirements as well. Very briefly, is this just a February spike in which we talk about Medicaid again? Or is this going to be a long-term, at least through the election, discussion of attempts to reduce healthcare from not quite all to even fewer? I think we can expect to see continued conversation about Medicaid. We're waiting for the work requirement decision to come down from the D.C. Circuit. And I think it's also notable that there are a couple of states where ballot initiatives may be coming up. So Missouri is one and the governor of Missouri said that he's not uh, going to seek a block grant if there is a successful ballot initiative. Who knows if that's true or not? But North Carolina is also looking hard at expanding. Um, governor Kelly in Kansas has said she's going to say no to work requirements in Medicaid expansion. So there's still Medicaid expansion play that's pointing in a bunch of different directions. And the truth is, you know, as I've pointed out before, this isn't just a red state, blue state dynamic. There are rural populations who would benefit greatly from Medicaid 
Medicaid expansion because studies show that Medicaid expansion helps to keep rural hospitals open and helps to stabilize communities. And there's reason to believe that some so-called red state politicians will continue to think that Medicaid expansion is a good thing. So whether this goes to court or not, which I think it will, and whether anybody is interested in all of the policy questions being debated in terms of health reform right now, I do think that we should expect continued conversation about Medicaid. I agree and just want to add that it is a choice for the administration to continue pursuing strategies, including work requirements, now including block grants, that it knows will be tied up in court and therefore therefore face a relatively small chance of going into effect and certainly of spreading more widely. These are a reflection of the agency's priorities and of how the administration views the Medicaid program. Program. And they're pursuing these strategies and spending the time and energy and agency resources, which are limited, rather than pursuing other strategies which would be beneficial for patients. And that was the week in health law. Thanks for a great discussion. You can find Professors Huberfeld and Sachs on Twitter at nhuberfeld1 and at re Sachs. Thank you both. Always wonderful to have you on the show. Thanks so much, Nick. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for having me. Show notes are at tool.com. I am at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Thank you for joining me and have a legally interesting but healthy week.